Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for joining us on the Tropical MBA podcast. I'm on the horn with the man with whom I'm on the horn with often. It's my business partner, the CEO of our fine organization, the man we call the boss man. How you doing, boss man? Dan, I am doing very well. Waiting for you here in Prague. Uh, you're supposed to be here in T-minus two days. You're only a sweater away, my friend. True story. Yeah. There, there's sort of a badge of honor at showing up to a cold place with shorts on. It's a digital nomad honor. Uh, I will be flying to Prague. Hopefully, I'll have a pair of pants in my new Manal bag. We are preparing a talk for the fine people at MicroConf, so I'm looking forward to presenting there as well as meeting all the other intelligent attendees and meanwhile preparing for our big show on October 18th in Bangkok. Looking forward to that. This week on the show, we are talking to Jesse the Dominator Lawler, a guy we work with on a daily basis. And actually, I heard you guys have an interesting new tool that you've been employing. What's the story there? Yeah, so Jesse and I have been working, hopefully, to launch our app this week. I can't wait to start talking about it and stop calling it the app on this podcast, but I want to make sure it's at least got dun, a, dun, dun. a somewhat decent website up before we do that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we've been interfacing through HipChat. I was introduced to HipChat via Simon Payne from leadpages.com. Those guys are absolutely crushing it. Just raised $5 million last week. Anyways, Amazing. HipChat Where's the is applause how Simon effect? communicates with his developers. It's basically a more sophisticated Skype uh, without the calling feature. So it's, it's, a, it's a chat client where you can pick people and it has a little bit of a file management system. So I am finding it to be very nice, but I'm only about a week into it. Very cool. You know, a lot of people are going to look at this Simon Payne and, and Clay Collins getting the $5 million and say, well, nine months, they must have really been in the right place at the right time and stuff. No, they were in what I call a good place at a good time, which is these guys have been working on their craft for years and years. Simon is a brilliant developer. Clay is an excellent marketer with an excellent market sense. I started reading his blog in 2007. So these guys were just poised. You know, they had the they had everything. This was something good was bound to happen to these guys in other words, you know. It's not like yeah. they they we're, made a really clever pitch or had this brilliant idea or whatever. No, they they always had good ideas. They, they, these guys had good ideas since I first started hearing them. Yeah, exactly. And these guys have been in the game for such a long time. You know, Clay Collins is one of the original gangsters of internet marketing. So he was, uh, he's been aligning himself for several years to be where they're at now. An, an original gangster. It's, it's like he's been an internet marketer for over five years. Yeah. <laughs> so hey, if you're if you're if you're if you're not in the game yet, and you're thinking that's about as long as it took me to get through college, and that really didn't get me anywhere. So <laughs> look at look at you know if you join the internet marketing sphere in 5 years you could who knows where you could be especially given that it does seem like Ian things are happening faster. I'm seeing people develop businesses and successful online presences faster. You know technology's better, people the marketplaces are educated so I don't know. I don't know if it's true or not, but you know I used to say 1000 days, maybe now I'd say 850 days. 
850. You heard it from you heard it from Mr. Andrews. All right. Speaking of world domination, this week we're doing a deep dive with Jesse Lawler, founder of Smart Drug Smarts and a bunch of other stuff, working with us on this new application. And he's got a great story and a lot to share with us about making distributed software teams. So let's get started. My guest today, Jesse Lawler, distinguished by many things, just a few to list. You are my business partner, which I, I think that's pretty distinguished. I'm happy happy to uh, be able to add that to my little resume. You are a guinea pig for smart drugs. You do self-experiments, and you post these self-experiments on your blog, smartdrugsmarts.com. You have the nickname The Dominator because your reputation is as one who dominates. Um, you used to be a film director and producer. You have an IMBD profile. I do have an IMDb profile. I think I, it's, I still Google for it. I'm just getting started. You've built productivity apps for David Allen, the godfather. Also true. You have moved to Ho Chi Minh City. You have built an offshore development team. Uh, what it is your main company, Evil Genius Technologies, builds iPhone applications, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's iPhone, it's iPad, it's web application. Um, there's even a little bit of Android that comes out every now and then. But yeah, it's a, we, we sort of try to be a one-size-fits-all custom software shop. So I have a lot that I want to ask you. I, I think we can go over a broad range of things. Um, in particular, I'm interested in distributed teams. I'm interested mm-hmm. in some health tips. I'm interested in how you get business uh, and how people can make great iPhone apps. But if I can tie all those together in one <laughs> sentence, this is going to be the best interview ever. We've got time. Let's back up. I want to hear about your entrepreneurial journey. I met you at the TMBA last summer. Yeah. So we've known each other for a year. You were a speaker at DC Berlin last year. You flew the whole way around the world in order to come to DCPKK. Yeah, that, that's true. I think it was a 50-hour plane flight on that one or take, a series of, yeah. Take me back to the time when you were living in Los Angeles, making movies, uh, you, that's basically like being an entrepreneur. Yeah, there, there's something sort of inherently, well, I, I don't want to say entrepreneurial about filmmaking, but there, there, it's a real weird you know, economy there because so many of the people in that city that work in the film industry, it's like you'll have an, a nice high-paying job for like six weeks to six months while you're on a film, and then everybody is fired, and that's the nature of the beast. And then everybody you know, collects unemployment. Like even if you've been making like a six-figure salary or the equivalent, like then you collect unemployment for a couple of weeks or a couple of months until you get your next big job and, and then get the next thing. So it, it's a, a really interesting, I guess, ecology to that economy. That um, I've noticed that everybody yeah. in Los Angeles is really friendly. And I think there must be something connected there because when you go to a bar, you think, oh, yeah, maybe everybody in Los Angeles is going to be snotty. But instead, they're kind of like, hey, how are you? What is it that you're doing? And they're kind of curious because maybe they need the next job or they need the next gig. Did yeah. you notice that when you were there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a funny city because, I mean, the, we, could, we could talk for hours about Los Angeles. <laughs> but, you know, unlike New York, where like the, the upper end of the pecking order in New York is like the bankers and they all dress a certain way. Like the upper end of the pecking order in, in Los Angeles is still these like artist types. That sometimes they're wearing flip flops and and sneakers and, you know, looking like, you know, something the cat dragged in. And so you never really know who you're talking to. So I think I think people have sort of learned to be careful about that. And then also so many of the jobs for the people that are sort of the creative set trying to, you know, be an actor, be a musician, be a model, be a, you know, one of those types of things. They are sort of non-falsifiable skill sets in a way. And so a lot of it, it <laughs> deals with, like, can you convince somebody that they like you enough that they want to work with you? It's not like you, you show them, a, like, a, a provable, like, here's my credentials. Like, this piece of paper proves that I can act. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not like that. So relationships really matter a lot in that town. I like that about entrepreneurship, that in some ways 
it's not you can talk all you want but if it doesn't work it doesn't work mm -hmm. the same thing with a, a, a great computer program I mean it, it either solves a problem or it doesn't when you were doing all this Hollywood stuff I'm assuming <laughs> 10 years of my life all this Hollywood stuff it's like, <laughs> shit is that what it amounts to yeah I, hanging out at the Viper room or whatever it is you guys did did you see yourself as an entrepreneur did, did you did you portend this, this – now you're this digital nomad. You run a, a business that's successful with tons of employees and stuff. How many employees do you have now? Uh, right now there's 10 of us, I think. It might have just jumped to 11, but it, it, it kind of floats around in there. There's a, a good handful of full-timers and then a few uh, sort of as-needed you know, recurring cast of characters, I guess, to keep Tell me about LA. the transition. When did you start to think maybe, maybe the California movie thing won't work? Yeah, well, this is probably the most dramatic part of the story because it's definitely sort of like my personal crash and burn is the 2008 financial crisis hit and everybody just you know, lost their shirt. The people that would typically be investors in independent film projects which are, which are like a notoriously risky investment. It's one of these things where you either lose 100% of your money or you make 10 times your money. Mm -hmm. And so people invest in that, but it's, it's always a gamble. And the people that do know it's a gamble. So after you know, everybody had just you know, lost a, a significant portion of their, you know, what they thought was their safe money, when the stock market crashed, just nobody wanted to roll the dice on independent films anymore. And so you know, I, I was producing small budget films for you know, television and stuff like that. And, you know, the, the people that you would normally knock on the doors is like, your job as a film producer is when you're not actively producing a film, you're raising money for the next film. And so I'd finished one film that, that I was in that raising money for the next one cycle. And it was just a time when nobody wanted to stroke a check for an independent film. And so I, I kind of, you know, pretty much entirely wasted my 2010 and, and 2000, like half of 2009, just sort of knocking on doors and, and you know, getting doors slammed in my face, uh, you know, rhetorically just time and time and time again. And eventually, you know, enough of that, I was like, as much as I, I still do love film, you know, I, I was tired of working a full day's work and not really having anything to show for it at the end of the day. And so I was like, eh, you know, um, I'm just watching my savings dwindle and figured it was time to time to transition into something else, at least long enough for the economy to sort of lick its own wounds and get people back, you know, interested in investing in film again so I could sort of start that process over. Um, I, I transitioned into uh, computer programming because that was what I had done. You know, that, my college degree was in computer programming. I had done that for years. It was something that even though the languages had changed since I'd sort of been out of that game, I knew that you know, hopefully all those synapses hadn't died from the hookers and blow in LA, <laughs> and so uh, and, and I was actually I was lucky in that it was it was a pretty smooth transition back into that. Were you terrified, or were you just like, hey, I got to do this? Because I think a lot of people have trouble with the sunk cost. Yeah, you, you had so much of your life invested into the filmmaking. It, w it was like, yeah, I can't really stress how hard that was. Um, you know, more psychologically than anything else, because you know I had really thought of myself as like. Jesse the filmmaker. Everybody thought of Jesse as, yeah, he's the guy living in L.A. making these movies. You know, the, 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 each one's a little bit bigger than the last. He's, he's on this trajectory, you know, headed to do this thing. And, and to have to fold up the towel on that and, and really do just like a radical life change was painful. It was like it was a really, really painful thing. And one of these like, wow, have I just you know, wasted a decade of my life, you know, you, you kind of, it's, I assume it's like the old person on the deathbed thinking, thinking, oh, was it all worth it? <laughs> you know, sort of the, the, you know, 30 year olds version of that. But the, I guess the happy ending to that story is actually the transition into technology went very smoothly. And, you know, within, within a couple of months was, you know, earning good money doing that and, you know, had, had enough 
enough freelance work coming in that I was able to, I could have been billing myself out 24 hours a day if I could work 24 hours a day. And so I started hiring people and, and, and eventually. you can work 24 hours a day, which we'll get to that at the end of the episode. <laughs> uh, tell me about those initial, when you hung your shingle out and you said, my name's Jesse, I'm a technologist. How did it go from that moment to you running a business? How did you get traction with those first few clients in cash flow? Well, the, the trick is to uh, charge more than you need to live on. And, and luckily, technology is something that allows you to do that. It was weird. I mean, the, the first couple of projects I did, I guess, in technology were things that I did pretty much pretty much for free, kind of as learning projects for me. Because, again, I was learning languages, computer languages, that I hadn't used previously in, in, my, in my earlier iteration. Like as the a, Apple stuff. As a professional programmer. Yeah, like when I had gone full bore into a into film, like the iPhone hadn't even come out yet. Right. And so at this point, you know, I, I pop out the other end of my, my film career. I've got this cool iPhone. I don't know how to program it, but I like my iPhone. I'm like, you know, somebody is programming the apps on this thing. I should figure <laughs> out how that works. But I needed a couple projects to kind of like, you know, get my teeth sharp again. And so I could just kind of figured I should hang the shingle out there, say, hey, I'm, I'm Jesse. I'm willing to do this pretty much just for the experience of learning and getting a couple things on the resume. And, and the first few apps were pretty much like that. You know, I wasn't terribly fast on delivery for them, um, but it wasn't costing anybody anything. And pretty much the, the word of mouth which is really still how a lot of like our, our client work gets generated, kind of started with that and has never stopped. It's like I can still trace a lot of the, um, you know, the larger clients and sort of the repeating contracts that we have now as being you know, a couple spiderweb steps removed from those first totally free projects. Wow. So yeah. one of the things about Evil Genius Technologies that I find personally interesting is a little bit different from some of the things we talk about in the show is that you have a minority business partner yeah. in that venture how did you make that work? What, why didn't you just go it alone? Why did you bring somebody else on? You know, it, it, was, it was a very organic process where it, at first, you know, it was just Jesse, the, the solo, solo programmer, kind of like hanging his shingle out there. And then I needed to, you know, hire a few extra programmers to help with some auxiliary stuff. And then it got to the point where, well, gosh, it would be great to have somebody that's kind of running the business end of the shop, making sure the books are balanced and, you know, maybe looking for more clients while I'm actually typing code and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, I, I got in touch with a really good friend of mine, Ben, who I'd, I'd worked with in the film industry and known for years. And I knew, he, you know, he, w he was sort of living this, this same Los Angeles thing of working on a film for a while, you know, not having a job for a while, working on a film for a while. And, and, and like the economy was crap then in Los Angeles as far as people that were, were doing that sort of thing. Because, I mean, it wasn't just me that was hit by the um, sort of the blow to independent and film production during those couple of years. It's like everybody that kind of worked in that that arena was uh, was really scrambling for a while. So I, I just said, hey, Ben, I've got a pretty good thing going over here in the technology world. You want to come work with me on this for a while? And, and, and he's just, you know, one of these guys who will, you know, run repeatedly into the brick wall until eventually the brick wall gives way. And, um, yeah, it just sort of made sense to give him, you know, like an, an equity stake in the business as well as a salary. And yeah, so it's like... And that's worked out for you. Yeah, that, that's worked out well. And I, I, I hope he would think it worked out well for him as well. Is there so, any yeah. part of you that thought about going to get one of those $150,000 jobs in Santa Monica? Why didn't you do that? Why did you scrape up projects and work for free? Boy, that's, that's a great question. And yeah, there, there, there was a part of me. In a, in a way, that kind of felt like it would be... Transitioning out of film felt like I was betraying a large part of myself. I mean, I, I'd really moved to Los Angeles, you know, at you know, 22 years old. You with, grew up where? Uh, Oregon, yeah. Okay. West Coast kid, but yeah, lived in a small town in Oregon. And, 
and yeah, basically after uh, it was like you know I'd been out of college for about a year, and then it was it was time to move to L.A. It was like that that had been the game plan, and I, I really moved there with the mentality of you know I'm going to make it in L.A. or die trying, and to <laughs> not live up to my ideals and to transition out of that career path without actually dying. I still you know I wonder if I would be able to look my 22 year old self in the face because I mean in, in a way I kind of did betray that ideal, but it would have been an even worse betrayal to have, have gotten a job for the man. <laughs> it's like you know. It, it's nice knowing that if you know technology well enough, there always kind of is the fallback of, well, I can go work for somebody else and make pretty good money. But that sure wouldn't. And also that felt weird, weirdly permanent. It's like it just kind of felt like that would be the hooks would be in deeper than they are with you know owning my own business. It's like you know technically if I decided to sell off my client list or something to another developer and fold up shop on Evil Genius Technologies myself, it's like there there could still be a pretty clean exit for me now that if you decide to exit a job job type job, there's no there's <laughs> there's nothing to hand it off to. There's I mean I, I just don't even know how that would work. Tell me about the digital nomad thing. Because you had a motorcycle, right? You had a, yeah. a nice place in the Hollywood Hills. I miss my motorcycle, and I do miss <laughs> my nice place. But Why did you give up that nice Los Angeles lifestyle and join this community of digital nomads? In some ways, I mean, you could have hung back in Los Angeles and made a bunch of money and been fine. Why did you find yourself in this scene? Great question. I pretty much, like my first year of Evil Genius Technologies, uh, 2011, I kind of did the cafe worker thing in Los Angeles. There was a couple of Starbucks that I would kind of rotate between, and I was one of those guys on the laptop, you know, rocking out to whatever and, and, and kind of living as a location-irrelevant programmer in Los Angeles. <laughs> and it, it occurred to me just kind of late in the year that, wow, it's like now that I'm fully divorced from film, you know, I, there's no there's no physical re- – it, it took a year for that to dawn on me that, like, I don't need to be here. Like, there's, there's nothing actually holding me here other than um, sort of inertia and the fact that, of course, I had friends and a life and all that stuff. But I also kind of knew that if I left for a little while to do some traveling, that the friends and the life – you know, weren't going to disappear. People that are like going to not be your friend because you're gone for 18 months aren't your real friends anyway. So yeah, I just kind of figured it would be a good opportunity to do some traveling. And, and you know, so here's the, here's the backstory on Dan and me. It was December of 2011 that I was thinking, hmm, I should travel and see some parts of the world that I haven't seen. I've, I've always been curious about Bali. And so I, I started Googling around about like Bali and the internet because I wanted to see if there was Wi-Fi in Bali. And, and the, the first thing that popped up on Google is one of Dan's articles about being a digital nomad in Bali. And I'm like, lifestyle business podcast? What the, what the hell is this? And, and that, that's I think I signed up for your thing that night and it started me down the, uh, the whole, you know, Dan and Ian rabbit hole, and, and, and here we are today. That's crazy to me. Have, what have been the advantages for you? I mean, let's talk a little bit about why did you set up shop here in Ho Chi Minh City? I, I wish I could say that setting up shop in Ho Chi Minh City was more by design than by circumstance, but the, the, there's there's probably some of both. My first, even, even in 2011 when I was living fully in Los Angeles, I, I was working with overseas developers that I was trying to, you know, find people on Odesk and, and find, um, you know, people that I could hand off components within larger projects too that I could explain well enough where I could get something back and sort of tie it into the the overall architecture that I was building. And so I was getting pretty used to working with people remotely and, and having you know employees and trying to kind of do that management process. And, and again, being a tech manager is, is kind of something that I'm, I'm still learning as I go. And I feel like I'm groping around and give myself like, you know, a, probably a C minus at best at, at my current skill level. But it, it's something that you know I'm, I'm working towards. So, so yeah, my, my first year kind of doing the digital nomad thing it was the balls to the wall digital nomad thing. I was in 
you know, 11 different countries, not counting airports and stuff like that. And kind of like moving every three or four weeks was, you know, hit a lot of continents and sort of crossed a lot of things off the, hmm, that sounds crazy. I want to do it list. And, and that was a lot of fun. And, and yeah, I mean, 2012 was like one of the best years of my life as far as that goes. But by the end of the year, I was a little burned on the, the high paced travel because, you know, I'm also into being healthy and, and trying some of the sort of like lifestyle stuff that you can't really optimize for when you're traveling that frequently. And so um, even though I kind of had two years as like a number in my head that I wanted to be outside the U.S. and kind of living abroad, I didn't want to be traveling at such a high pace this year. And so I was thinking, okay, well, if I wanted to kind of plant a flag in some city during 2013, where would that be? And there were, there were a couple of cities that, that were sort of in the running. And I just decided I would sort of visit them in sequence and see if I hated one, I would move on to the next one. And Ho Chi Minh City was first on the list um, based on recommendations from John Myers and, and, and other people that I just sort of, you know, reading along on the D.C., different threads on the pros and cons on different things. But I'd never been here. I'd been to Vietnam a few years ago, but it was up in the north in Hanoi and, and had never made it to a Ho Chi Minh City. And so I came here, tried it out for a couple of weeks, really liked it, and I, I never made it to the next city on the list. And, um, and, and Let's so- talk about what you've created here because I go over to your apartment. It's massive. It's on the 17th floor, whatever. It overlooks the city. You've got a studio in there with your logo on the wall and a, a bunch of kids working in there with you. It's not a sweatshop. They're not kids. They're all over 18. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it, it's this pretty phenomenal place. You host a bunch of entrepreneurs there every weekend for your paleo breakfast. You've got personal servants and assistants everywhere. What an amazing thing to create. So explain it to us a little bit in terms of the numbers so that other people might, if they want to set up an offshore dev shop, how they might emulate what you've done. Because I think that it's pretty fascinating opportunity for developers. Yeah, the numbers are not as, as much as you would think. You know, we, we sort of, I've got one roommate in this, you know, rather large apartment. I've got, I've got a roommate and we have a, a five bedroom, three, three bath place for, you know, two single dudes. So it's, it's definitely way bigger than we need to live in. But each of us have some employees for our, our respective teams. And we just kind of ran the numbers and it made a lot of sense. And we decided, hey, do we want to get sort of a shorter term place and, and have the freedom to move in three months? Or are we willing to kind of plunk down on a long term lease? And again, it's like I'm used to living in Los Angeles where like, you know, my, my cost of living was about, you know, 4,500 a month. And I don't, I don't even begin to touch that here. Like, you know, hire, hiring employees, it gets up to that. But uh, the actual like just cost of being me yeah. is, is I, I haven't broken that out as its own thing. But I, I would guess the cost of being me if I factor in like the parts of the apartment that I don't use for living as, as a business expense rather than a personal expense is maybe 1200 and and that's at, at, at the upper end. And I mean, you could do it for way less than that. Does that so, include your personal assistant and your maid? No, that, that includes the maid, but not the personal assistant. Okay, okay, so so, so a, a moment's digression on maids. I've got a maid who, who does not speak a word of English and I, I speak probably... Well, she speaks about 10 words of English. I speak about 10 words of Vietnamese, but we don't actually talk to one another because both of us are heavily accented and, and, and suck as far as that goes. But she is absolutely dollar for dollar the best employee I have um, because the amount of time she saves me of just not ever doing laundry, not like I have not been to a grocery store in Saigon in six months plus. Just so sorts of like living things that like if you can buy that time back cheaply, which even in America now, now that I know like what an actual just huge upside is, like buying back those hours, I, I, w- I would do it again in a heartbeat. So for, for a full-time maid, uh, maid slash cook, who cooks for myself, 
three meals a day, seven days a week, and cooks for my team during lunch. So a, a team of about eight people in the office there. Shows up at, at seven in the morning, stays until 4.30 in the afternoon, uh, Monday through Friday, and then comes for a half day on Saturday. We are paying uh, $270 a month. And my girlfriend tells me that's too much, that's, that, that I'm overpaying. That's quite good. So it's just, it's crazy. It's like the dollar, how much it costs me through, through Chow, Chow's the name of the maid, to buy back an hour of my own time is just crazy. Talk to me about the developers here. What do you pay for them ballpark? And are they any good? Like developers anywhere, it's all over the map. As far as the, the upper, like the right out of college range, like for people that have just sort of popped out of the university, I think you can probably safely say you could hire a fresh out of college developer who probably doesn't really know too much, but like they, they know enough to put some simple websites together and kind of like to, to, to start learning more, but you wouldn't necessarily want them as, as like your go-to employee for anything, is you know probably about 275 to $325 a month. I've got I've got one guy who's in that category who's sort of a a long-term hire, somebody that I'm I'm I've got some of the senior members sort of training him. It's like he he's he's getting his his sea legs under him, but he's not something that I somebody that I would give a frontline project that needs to be bulletproof to. The upper end of the range here for a developer who's you know been working for maybe eight years and has led some teams and really knows their stuff and whatever their you know, probably small handful of languages after that level of expertise is probably about two two grand to maybe 2200 wow, for two, it, and but for that like you're going to get somebody that's a rock star like mm-hmm. a real rock star and, and yeah so i mean even though the, the numbers are deflated from what you would see in the u.s i feel like the, the the multiplicative range of somebody at the upper end being like eight times somebody at the bottom end that's probably kind of the same as i think you'll find in most places it's just that the cost of living here is is so radically much less i mean there's some interesting things i mean you've probably talked about this plenty before with, with like you know with asian culture it's like until people get married they oftentimes live at home and so if you just right. popped out of college and you're not married yet, you don't really have any cost of living it's like you're still living at your parents and you've done this thing that like the tropical mba style hire an expat or hire an intern yeah how, how, what's your current view on that? Did that work out okay for you? So I, I've got a, a kid named George from the UK who's over here in Ho Chi Minh City also who uh, either he convinced me or I convinced him to drop out of college. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't even remember it. I'm going to deny it anyway in case his parents are listening to this episode. But but yeah, to uh, drop out of college and just you know basically start working, start learning what it is to be like a you know freelance developer or, or a, you know sort of freelance for hire dev shop. And he's been working for me for about nine months now, and it's been doing great. He's been working on a variety of projects and different languages. And, and, you know, I've been sort of trying to throw him curveballs so he can kind of see what it's like to have to work with them. Because, like, when, when you're doing custom development work, which is what Evil Genius Technologies is, the core business still is, you know, you get requests for things in different languages with different database underpinnings and backbones and, you know, interfacing with this API or this legacy system that some old company might have that they don't want to grow out of. And so there's a lot of, uh, you need to be very, very flexible. And I've been, whereas some of my employees that I know will be with me for a long time, I'm trying to really hone their skills in a particular thing, make this guy my ASP.NET go-to guy. Since, you know, George is, is more like a, you know, I've got him for a year, maybe I've got him for two years, but then I know he's going to probably want to flap his wings and do something else. I'm trying to give him enough breadth of experience where he can kind of see what it's like to get those curveballs that that being a freelance developer throws at you. When we were at the Tropical MBA together, you had a pretty advanced business at the time, 
and you were cracking out some high name projects. You know, we just talked about you were doing work for David Allen in the past. I mean, you had some really interesting projects on your plate. So I remember a personal sense of anxiety when it came to podcasting day because I was going to give a presentation on why everybody should start a podcast and what, you know, the biggest mistakes that people make are and what you need to do. And I remember even looking at your face and being like, I am going to bore the crap out of that. He's going to fall asleep for the next hour. And I was really uh, delighted to learn that you were excited by the, the presentation. And then come Smart Drug Smarts. You've told me this story before, and I've always been kind of surprised by it because, like, the whole reason that I was there in the Philippines in this middle of nowhere island is because I like your podcast. It's like, well, <laughs> but um, I'm not that smart. Well, <laughs> so Jan is, is self-effacing to, to the nth degree. Tell me about this experience of you starting from scratch and putting up a super high quality, funny, interesting podcast. How has it changed your life? Like, what kind of perspective do you have? What, what about people who are listening to this podcast thinking, yeah. I've been kind of thinking about starting a podcast. You went out there and did it. You know, what's your suggestion? What do you think? What have you learned? Well, you know, Smart Drug Smarts has been really, really fun for me because, you know, like I was working in Hollywood. It's like I, I, I was a movie guy. It's like that's a really creative outlet. I mean, there's obviously there's business aspects to it, too. But a lot of the client coding work that I had been doing for two, two and a half years at that point was was not necessarily something that was cr- scratching my creative itch. And, and getting to do the podcast definitely felt like much more of a creative outlet, something where I wasn't working for a client, but like it was, um, you know, I, I got to do what I thought made sense or was cool or whatever. You know, I designed the logo myself and all that. And there wasn't anybody right. to say, hey, I don't like that color scheme, Lawler. And, then, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, that was really nice to have that creative outlet again. And that, that's been one of the main things that it's done for me. I think there's some interesting professional things that have happened with your show. I think you're in a highly monetizable niche. You're in a niche that not a lot of people are attacking. And then when you look at your track record, how many episodes do you have? We just published number 20. Okay, so you're on your 20th episode. You've spoken to PhDs. You've spoken to world-leading researchers, people with books that are published in real bookstores that know (laughs) real things. You've spoken at a conference about this stuff. That this is the, the message I'm trying to get out there. You know, don't just start the next podcast that's like, here's, here's online productivity. You know, if you focus it on something that's meaningful to people, to researchers, to industry, it, it can catapult you so fast. Yeah, and, and I guess it's worth mentioning that, I mean, the, the whole podcast is like less than a year old at this point. And I mean, it, 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 it's nothing to brag about. And, and certainly it's, it's not a business yet. It's like I haven't done anything to monetize it. I'm, I'm not really sure. What the, what the long-term game plan for it is. I mean, right now it's kind of a hobby project, but I think it is pretty cool and worth, worth mentioning to people that like at this point there's, you know, there's a significant level of like listener traction with this thing, despite the fact it's gotten not nearly enough of my attention versus what I think it ideally should for less than a year. But uh, yeah, I mean, 20 episodes and thousands of subscribers and, and all that stuff. So, um, so a side project. Yeah. As a side projects go, it's not too bad. I mean, it, it's, I, I there feel are like people serving these niches with art. I mean, that's what I like. You, you, you can tell you're passionate about this topic. Yeah. You're doing the hard work. You're researching your interviews. You're reading crap. I mean, you're learning a ton. You're putting your art out there. This is just what I think is beautiful about social media and content marketing in general is that you're going out there and being an advocate. You're not an MD. You're not a researcher. You're not an expert. You're just a guy who's willing to do the work for other people. And now people that go to Harvard and research for 10 years, they look to a guy like you who's somebody who can provide them with a ton of value because you can put their book in front of people. 
Right. And, and that's been one of the things that's been, you know, really cool about sort of this format of, of doing an interview based podcast is, you know, the, the first couple are hard because it's like you call somebody up and they're like, well, who are you? How do I know this is actually going to be published? It's like when you have <laughs> your, your first one is like you got to convince somebody to talk with you for an hour that, you know, you, ha- you have nothing to show for yourself. But at this point, at least there's enough of a body of work where we can reasonably ask some pretty high level people to come and, you know, give 45 minutes of their time to talk on the show. And and that's been awesome because it relieves me of the responsibility of needing to know decades worth of, of high level research into this <laughs> stuff. I can just be Jesse, the interested guy, which I legitimately am. And, uh, and, and, you know, get the right person on the show to feed the audience and me all kinds of information. One person once said about you that if, if your willpower muscle uh, were represented in a real muscle, it would be one of those grotesque bodybuilder biceps. <laughs> and, and what this has allowed you to do is you've done a lot of self-experimentation over the years. You've been on a lot of radical different diets. You change your sleeping patterns regularly and kind of self-test. I find this really interesting about you. And I'm wondering if you could maybe take some combinations uh, of some things you've learned on your show and some things from self-experimentation, maybe like the 80-20. What are some really simple things? Because it, it is true, you are an extremely productive person. Um, you burn clean. You work hard. What are some things that, that have really, maybe some things people don't think about so much that you employ or that you've seen others employ to really live healthier, uh, be more productive? Yeah, okay, though, that, that's a great question. There's a lot, of, a lot of places to go with that. So I was talking with David Hayenberger a couple weeks ago, and, and he was asking sort of a similar thing about like, hey, Jesse, it seems like you, you put down a lot of hours of, you know, what would be counted as productivity per day, like, you know, what's the secret, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I thought about it, and he kind of wished I had a better secret, but I mean, he, <laughs> he's meeting me at, you know, Jesse, the 36 year old and, and, you know, didn't know Jesse, the 24 year old and Jesse, the 24 year old was, was a hardworking guy too. And, and, a, and a really ambitious guy too, but probably a lot of what you see now in Jesse, the 36 year old is just like sort of long-term habituated pruning of things that don't seem like they are beneficial to like the next iteration of myself. You know, it, it's weird. It's like, I feel like my worldview is very, very based on this lack of belief that I can predict what I'm going to want next. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I don't really know what Jesse, the 40 year old is going to be, wa- be wanting or be after in his life. And so I'm, I'm just trying to think, okay, what, what can I do now to maximize you know, this, this future incarnation of Jesse's options at that point, you know, keep his options open, make sure he's got resources to play with. And, and so that, that's sort of the, um, you know, my, my like test case. Or so long-term or, thinking, yeah. kind of focus on habits, mm-hmm. great habits. You're constantly tweaking habits, which I think is interesting. Let's talk some basic things. Here, do you here, drink here. coffee? I, I do drink coffee. Here, let me let me give one habit which I, which has been really useful for me, and and I think it's really easy to implement. I, it, it's pruning Fridays. Okay. E- every Friday, I go through a little spreadsheet, and I'm not going to tell you where I keep it. That has things that I, I've wondered. Like, hmm, is this really worth the effort that I'm putting into it? Is, is it worth the resources? Is it worth thinking about, you know, blah, blah, blah. This, this could be projects. It could be, be other habits within my life. It could be people that I'm in contact with. Um, it, it's sort of anything that's, that's taking attention energy from me. And I just kind of do a little assessment like, hey, is, does this worth, is this worth being here? And, you know, most Fridays I won't prune anything. But every now and then some, some pruning happens and just like, that person's not getting return phone calls anymore, or that project's just got to be scrapped and I need to just suck it up and not deal with the fact that it's already cost time or cost money or, or whatever. But like kind of the, the religious pruning habit, 
I think has been really useful for me. This is interesting. Uh, Taylor brings this up and, and Talib mentioned it in Anti-Fragile that when a lot of us want to make self-improvement, in particular Americans, we always think we need to add things. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, I should go to the gym more. I should eat more apples. I should take supplements. I should join a program. I should buy a treadmill. And you and Taylor both take the opposite approach, which is like, I should just drink less coffee. I should stop going out. I should stop talking to vampires. Wait a minute. Let's not talk about drinking less coffee. I, I never said that. <laughs> is there any of these smart drugs that you talk about on your show that you would regularly use? Yeah. Right now, well, I, I guess, you know, by, by way of preamble, I feel like nootropics are a total waste of time if you're not going to get yourself physically healthy sort of the old-fashioned way first Mm -hmm. um it's kind of like you know the rearranging deck chairs on the titanic or you know putting a new coat of paint on a shitty piece of car or whatever it is (laughs) um it's like you know the the biggest advantages i think that a person can get is going to be to to make sort of their their underlying plumbing um and whatever their genetics gave them working as as best as possible and that's you know a combination of diet and exercise and and also i I think like general positivity to the largest extent possible i mean i think you know we we, we talk about you know mindset type stuff a lot and I i think there's actually some downsides to being optimistic which we could go into but 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 overall like you can look like a douche you can you certainly can (laughs) so you're talking about proper sleep exercise yeah diet is probably the 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 fundamental building block for all right that stuff's boring i want to hear about okay never mind you want to talk about drugs okay (laughs) smart drugs okay oh what am i on right now i've I've definitely got some caffeine in my system i've probably got some residual modafinil from yesterday because it's got a a a long half-life to it a lot of people now are saying they're worried about modafinil they're worried about the boomerang so to speak you know you get your high level are you seeing negative impact of taking modafinil? Well, you know, I've talked with enough people about modafinil now that I've seen that it really does affect different people differently. Um, I kind of tend, I guess personally, I'm in the lucky group that I haven't really seen much of a downside. How do you decide when to take it? I decide when to take it when when I really want to sort of like drop in and focus. And it, it to a certain extent, it's almost like a ritual now that like if I want to go on like, you know, what I call in computer programming, I call it a code burn. Just when I, I want to dive and attack a problem and, and not look up from my screen for, you know, six or eight hours. It's like when I know a code burn is, is in the offing and it's something that needs to happen, like the modafinil, you know, 100 milligram pill is is almost like a ritualistic thing for me. And um how much of that is the modafinil itself now and how much of it is is my excitement about no, uh, like the past times I've taken modafinil in that circumstance and have been effective for me. It's like there's, there's certainly some positive placebo effects that, that get built into that as well. Do you find that you overshoot the moon and then the next day you lose your rhythm a little bit mm-hmm. and suffer? Or is it or can you keep the rhythm even though when i use modafinil as a sleep avoidance strategy it is generally a bad idea the, the sleep demons will catch up with you but if if i just use it to really kind of you know taking it early in the day when it's not going to mess with my sleep that night and i just want the the alertness boost i've seen no downside at all and and what's interesting is and i think you could use it for a sleep avoidance strategy for a day maybe two days i i don't think it's necessarily for long term use for people that haven't taken nootropics, but have like, you know, drank alcohol or smoked weed or something like that. And like, you kind of have these preconceived notions of, of what the feeling of being on a drug is. And it's, right, it's hard right. to like, you know, multiply that by negative one and think about what a drug would be like that would make you more focused. Let's, let's do this as a parting shot. Sometimes I try to wrap things up. You know, sure. What's the core most interesting idea here? There's a lot of people in the audience that 
development is a core part of what they do. What you've done is kind of this interesting thing. I've seen it happen quite a few times over the last four or five years since I've been on the road. You relocate to the other side of the planet, you set up a home and you turn it into a dev shop and then eventually you move into an office building or whatever. Who is that good for? Is it good for everybody? I mean, should people even be running software companies in Omaha, Nebraska? Should they be here in Ho Chi Minh City? Who should follow in your footsteps and what what, what can they learn from you? That That's an interesting question. I mean, so I didn't have the wife and kids, you know, kind of anchoring me to a spot. So it, w- it was easier for me to do that. If somebody wants to run a dev shop, A, they pretty much need to be a developer, I think, themselves or or. It's it's like the business is so built into the tech that you can't you can't extricate yourself from that, and I think it's really useful, especially here's with, with like hiring and finding out like as you as you're working with the developers who, whom you hire, sort of the growth of any relationship, you're going to find out different people's strengths and weaknesses, and this person is good at that, they're not so good at that. I think it's really helpful to be in the same physical location with your developers as you're kind of learning those strengths and weaknesses, so you can kind of figure out how to properly assign things. So I, I don't think it's it's a business that could be done remotely, at least not in its early stages. Hmm. So I, I think if, if you want to run a remote dev shop, you pretty much do need to be willing to relocate. A lot of people ask me, like, well, what's it like living in a country where you don't speak the language? And, you know, it's, you know, it's shockingly easy, as you know. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's weird being a functional illiterate, but there, there's always ways around that. And, and having the finances on your side as far as, you know, just the, the low cost of living, it's like you can, you can buy your way out of that problem really easily. You said that for certain performers, you're getting eight times cost performance. Now, oh no! Actually, that what I was saying there is is probably the the highest paid guys are getting about eight times the lowest paid guys. Like that that was sort of the the range. Okay, so how would you then compare? You know, the entry level developer here is making four hundred dollars a month. Right. The entry level developer back home is making sixty five thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Now those are just salary numbers. What would you think is the real productivity numbers? Have you ever thought about that? Like if you yeah. would have one guy or two two people, two gals back in California versus, well, you'd already be beyond your payroll here of 10 people, right? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so I haven't, you know, hired enough people over the course of my career to have a, a statistically relevant sample size in mind. But I mean, I can kind of think of the people that I went to computer science classes with in the U.S. when I was in college as sort of an average sample pool. I feel like probably the the average education of a graduating computer science person is definitely higher in the U.S. than it is here. I feel like there's probably a lot more societally endemic, like thinking your way around corners that we have in the West mm-hmm. than I've seen in like developers from, from parts of the developing world. And, and I, I don't know if that's a problem with the education system here or just sort of a cultural thing. But, but I've definitely had experiences where uh, like like when I was in Los Angeles in 2011, and I was working with developers in India, which is you know 11 and a half hours time difference, and so I would stay up late to try to work with them. But eventually, it's like even I've got to sleep. So you know, I, I would give give my assignments, work with them, you know, hold hands over Skype and stuff for the first couple of hours. But then it's like, okay, guys, I'm going to sleep. I'll see you in the morning. And more than once had the experience of well, you know, an hour and a half after I went to bed, they ran into some problem that wasn't what they foresaw, and they and they just work stops like wait for jesse to wake up and give further instructions and it's like the further instruction is well figure it out man it's like that's what you do it's like you debug you know work your way around that problem you know so much of of programming is coming up with the algorithm an algorithm is is a process that will inevitably lead to some 
result if you follow it all the way through. And like that's part and parcel. It's, it's not just memorizing these arcane syntax things. It's like figuring out what right. the sequential steps are to reach a result. And that, that's you know, got to be the programmer's first job. It's like all the syntax is kind of secondary stuff. But, but what I've found is uh, training people that like that's part of the job too is something which everybody in the U.S. that I you know, went to school with kind of came out knowing. And, and people don't necessarily come out of school knowing about that part of the whole process here. So that's part of being in person with them. Yeah, and, and just, you know, kind of, you know, people people get it once they get it. But giving people the freedom, like, no, you've got to think your way through this yourself. Like, what would you do if you were the one in the burning house? Are you just going to wait for somebody to give you instructions? <laughs> it's like, no, no, you got to find the door. Well, Jesse, I hope we can have you back on the show. To no talk, way, man. No to way. talk about our... Uh, valet parking software that we're collaborating on. We've got a lot of exciting tales to tell, but absolutely, we're going to get some customers in there first and see what they think before we come and uh, share those lessons. That's Jesse from Evil Genius Technologies and the Smart Drug Smarts podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you here, Jesse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Dan. My pleasure. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.